0: Hello and welcome to Gamification Unlocked, a show about real games and how we can use their techniques for learning and change. I'm Chad Haefeli, I work in user experience related stuff and the web in general in university libraries.
1: And I'm Brandon Carper, a training designer.
0: Today we're going to talk a little bit about controllers and what they might mean for learning and things, the transferable skills to take away from them. Do you have a favorite controller of all time?
1: I mean, it would probably be the Good old Super Nintendo controller where we, we graduated from the box that kind of hurt your hands from the NES. Yeah, those 90 degree angles. Right, into a nice curved uh, form that fit in your hand and had uh, a decent amount of buttons.
0: Yeah, what was it, like triple the primary buttons of the previous generation?
1: Uh, that sounds about right, yeah, because instead of A and B, you had A, B, X, Y, and then you had the L and the R triggers, so...
0: Oh, you've, you've passed the pop quiz.
1: <laughs> what else do you got?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned. I think for me, my favorite, um, I don't know if I can, you know, it's like picking your favorite child, but I like the original PlayStation controller, I think for the fact that everything else kind of copied that from then on, with you know, the, the dual stick uh, one for each thumb layout. Um I think that was kind of a, a a major change for controllers. But like if there's one control I love above all others, I think it is the satisfying click of the trigger on the old NES zapper gun. <laughs> playing Duck Hunt.
1: When you were a child, did it ever just blow your mind how the zapper worked? Like I remember as a oh, kid yeah. just trying to figure out in my own small head how it worked and I just I I couldn't.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you never successfully untangled that no. <laughs> I later in later years I read up on it and it's it's kind of fascinating actually if I remember right technically the TV is shooting at the gun, uh huh, rather than the other way around like the gun is a camera that's watching for things on the TV,
1: yeah. So when you play Duck Hunt, the entire screen turns white except for the bird,
0: I think, mm-hmm.
1: and then if the gun is pointing at a white part of the screen, then it means you missed because it was not at the bird.
0: Yeah. Really creative way to do it, Mm -hmm. but there was this really satisfying, um, kind of like springy noise when you pull the trigger, which I can still pretty definitively recreate in my head. Yeah,
1: I know exactly what you mean.
0: Yep. Did you have the orange version of the gun or the gray version?
1: I had the original gray version, Chad. Don't... Well, I'm sorry to insult
0: your credentials. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I believe that's the one I had also before they, I guess, decided it looked too much like a real gun and painted it orange.
1: Right, gave it its safety tag, so you could take yeah. it to cosplay conventions.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, so was the NES the first the that um, ninety degree angle one? Was that the first console controller you used? Do you think? Uh,
1: maybe the Atari. Was okay, the, the first single one. joystick, single button. Maybe that one. Yeah, maybe I think.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think you and I have probably used just about everything since then in, in various permutations at certain points. Yeah, include, but do you think, including
1: the N64 no, controller,
0: whatever. Yeah, we'll get to that whatever one. Was that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> the weird trident-shaped thing. <laughs> but do you feel like your experience with, you know, in your myriad of controllers, has using any of those controllers ever helped you out in a non-gaming situation? Like the skills or muscle memory you might have learned from it?
1: Yeah, I don't... <sighs> I, like I, I never was really into RC cars or flying drones or anything. So if I was, I could give an affirmative answer here. But I think be, beyond a nebulous, you know, hand-eye coordination thing that people always say about video games, I don't, I don't, I don't have much, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, the one really concrete example I can think of. Well, I can think of an anti-example first. So I've recently got a tiny drone that I've attempted to fly. Man, my skills have not transferred over. <laughs> <laughs> to that one uh it's a couple of joysticks that just i don't know it's uh my walls have a couple of dents in them now <laughs> <laughs> but on on the more successful side so at work we have this thing called a liquid galaxy google earth display it's essentially a like 180 degree google earth display a bunch of screens all around you and the primary control is method is like for
1: minority it, report
0: uh yeah, I think it definitely has an air of attempting to be like Minority Report. Yeah, I'll stand in front of it and just wave my arms around and and see what happens. And I am the precogs. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know there's probably some sleeping students around nearby somewhere I could fill in for that role. But the the primary interface for it is something called a 3D mouse, uh, which I actually had to dig to figure out what the term for it was. But it looks like a single knob essentially and you can rotate it um you know Clockwise or counterclockwise, you can tilt it forward, back, left, right, or you can pull it physically up or push it physically down. So, you've got those I don't know how many axes that is uh, six ish, maybe, maybe not far, mm. four multiple axis uh, controllers that you can use. And you use it to essentially fly around the world in, in the Google Earth environment. And I am one of the only people I work with who can successfully use this thing. Or that was able to use it without with pretty minimal practice. Like I, I spent about twenty seconds fiddling with it and kind of figured out the mechanics of it, and could fly around as as well as you can with a single joystick in a three D environment. Um, but everyone else I've seen has a. I mean, I sound like I'm bragging now. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> oh, you're, so, so you're like the neo of Liquid Galaxy Google Earth? <laughs>
0: oh God! Is, is, is that what you're that's, telling me? <laughs> I've discovered my gift, and it's extremely disappointing. <laughs> Um, so that's, you know, maybe the one example of a, a skill that I don't think I would have if I didn't have experience with controllers. Now, is that worth the untold hours I spent with the controllers to gain that facility with something I use once a semester? Eh, I'll leave that open to interpretation.
1: Had that been the only purpose for playing video games for years and years and years, maybe not, but. <laughs> I, just, I guess I had fun along the way, well, too. They, well, there you go. So Yeah, it was a we'll go
0: with that. <laughs> uh, but looking back at the history of controllers, like way back in an era that I think predates both your and my uh, existence, let alone experience with video games. The first controller might have been with the game Tennis for Two, which was played on an oscilloscope way in uh, 1958. And it had this kind of custom-built box with one knob and one button for each controller made out of aluminum. So if you think the NES corners were hard on your hands, I imagine that one uh, may have been a whole other era entirely. But the one I've done more research on is a game called Space War, with an exclamation point after the title. As every article I read about it <laughs> made sure to include, which made it really bizarre to, to read out loud in my head, um, was uh, created by a guy named Steve Russell. And it was run on a computer called the PDP-1. And, you know, games of this era were created almost accidentally. Like, the, the machines were not designed to play games at all. This was not a modern console. It was um, this is something that people, that programmers worked on and developers worked on in their spare time. And it was essentially a series of switches on a console that you would use, like a vertically mounted control box, essentially, off to the side of the display, a separate piece of hardware. I'll post a picture of this in the show notes. And as a result of this, you know, the screen was on the left. And you had your box of switches on the right. And it was a two-player game. And so if two people were trying to use the controls on the same box, there was an inherent advantage to being closer to the screen Mm -hmm. on that that side of the two. So they decided this was not fair. This could not be allowed to stand. And they decided they wanted some external controllers on wires that they could uh, reorient themselves a little bit. And from an article called The Origin of Space War, exclamation point, by J.M. Greats from the August 1981 issue of Creative Computing Magazine, Which, that's a great title for a magazine that you don't really see anymore. But he quoted um, that Alan Kotok and Robert Saunders, who just happened to be members of the Tech Model Railroad Club, (laughs) trundled off to the TMRC room, (laughs) scrabbled around the layout for a while to find odd bits of wood, wire, bakelite, and switchboard hardwire. And when the hammering and sawing and soldering had ceased, there on the CRT table were the first space war, exclamation point, control boxes. (laughs) So I love the idea of model railroad experience, I guess, from building control boxes for that sort of thing, maybe, um, playing playing into it. And unfortunately, these controllers have you know been lost to the ages. Nobody thought to archive them, but there's been artistic recreations of them. It's just a couple buttons, a couple switches, fairly simplistic by, by modern standards. I'm
1: just so. picturing every issue of Creative Computing Magazine having some type of wood paneled room on the front cover.
0: You know, eighties wood paneling,
1: right? <laughs> and there's there's some guy with hair that's probably a little bit too long and a mustache a little bit too bushy with tinted glasses, maybe just holding some box of some sort, smiling at the camera.
0: I feel you like. are painting a vivid picture in my head right now. <laughs> and an entirely plausible one, yes.
1: Uh apologies if this magazine is still around.
0: <laughs> I imagine uh, it's not the no, same I... now if it is. <laughs> I believe the, the reprint of the article I was reading opened with a quote that was something along the lines of, I attempted to see your cop- secure copyright permission for this, but couldn't find anyone <laughs> who had any authority over the magazine. <laughs> so, so here you go. So that was, what did I say, 1962 for that one. And, you know, by the time we get to the late 70s, you've got Atari and the more commercialized uh, home consoles for video games. So you've got that iconic one joystick, one button controller. Uh, 1983 in Japan or 85 in the US, you had the NES controller we've mentioned with the A and B button on the right side, a four-directional uh, button on the left, and a couple odds and ends in the middle for a start and select. And then maybe the next big leap was probably 1994 with the PlayStation, um, which actually changed in the, the midst of the console life cycle, which was kind of interesting. They added both the vibration feature and the, the thumbsticks that I mentioned earlier launched without it. And those got added in. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't know. I that. remember so
1: what was on the the left side or the right side.
0: So the left side of the original PlayStation controller was just the four directional D-pad uh-huh. and your two um, trigger buttons for your your pointer fingers. Uh huh. And on the right side was just was it circle, square, X, and triangle, huh. and another two buttons. So picture a PlayStation gamepad and remove the thumbsticks. Okay. That's essentially what it looked like.
1: I probably knew that, but just the years have...
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's things we take for granted now.
1: I just think that analog sticks have always existed on controllers. Yep.
0: <laughs> and then in 96 came the N64, the Nintendo 64 controller you mentioned earlier. So I feel like you have thoughts on this one.
1: Yeah, what happened there <laughs> is the thought I have. I mean, like its I guess it works, but it's just so... So what, there's the huge A button, right? And then there's like the tiny
0: X and Y buttons. Yep. And then... And it looked like it was designed to be held by three hands.
1: <sighs> yeah. I'm going to pull it up right now because I forget what exactly it looks like. and It's bothering me.
0: It was shaped like a trident. And I think the idea was you could hold it multiple ways depending on which game you were playing. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So it had like a single analog stick in the middle. But to use that, you had to move either your left or right hand out of range of other buttons.
1: Oh, so I was thinking of the GameCube controller just now. Okay.
0: Oh, that one's also special.
1: <laughs> okay. Yeah, oh, yeah, I, I do remember the N64 controller right, because I think the theory was that some games you would want to use the D-pad and some you would want to use the analog stick. Mm-hmm. But if you use the D-pad and the analog stick, then... There were no actual buttons you could press, except for, like, a button on the back. Was this when we first saw, like, the Z button on the back?
0: I think you're right. It had a trigger there. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I think in practice, basically, no games ever used the D-pad. Mm-hmm. Or, I mean, at least the games I played, I, which was pretty much Smash Brothers and GoldenEye. Right. And then jumping forward 10 years from there, we got the Wiimote, you know, the advents of... Uh, commercially successful motion controls where you could swing it around like a tennis racket and put holes in your tv
1: although much much more disappointing than i thought it was going to be
0: yeah (laughs) how did that manage to become as successful as it was in retrospect well so
1: Wii, Wii sports was great right yes but i remember being really psyched to play legend of zelda on the wii because i thought oh i can use the wii mode it's gonna be like a sword i can have sword fights with ganon and and so on but then to swing, to quote-unquote swing a sword in Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess, you just kind of twitch your wrist a bit, and then Link will yeah. always do the same uh, sword chop. Or maybe there was an overhead or a side-to-side. I don't even think there was that. But
0: Yeah, it was not a one-to-one action.
1: Right. And I think there was some other game where the sword fighting was supposed to be more tied to what you were actually doing with the Wii Mo. Maybe it was some Yakuza Japanese... yes
0: that sounds vaguely familiar but i can't remember the name of it
1: but i just feel like it didn't really live up to everything i wanted it to to
0: do really all i wanted was a lightsaber game and it totally failed to deliver on that (laughs) i feel like that was the entire promise of the wii and it, it was squandered though now apparently that's popping up again in virtual reality but who knows and then you know more modern day in 2013 which i can't believe these consoles are three years old already We're up to, you know, the PlayStation 4 and Xbox One versions of, uh, you know, essentially iterations on, I think, maybe the original PlayStation controller might be the most obvious antecedent for them.
1: And the newest PS4 controller has basically a
0: a mouse pad for your finger. Yeah, which, once again, no games use for anything.
1: Yeah, well, I remember when the, because Steam came out with a special controller, which... I did not pick up, but I heard it was supposed to enable you to do things like play Civilization or other mouse-based games with a controller. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if that was along the
0: same lines,
1: and if any games actually took advantage of it.
0: I've played one game, Tearaway Unfolded, which even attempted to use that as a control input, and it does some kind of clever things with it, but noth- I haven't seen any other games really even attempt it.
1: Mm. That's sad.
0: Yeah. They also attempted to use it as a type of, like, keyboard input. It's very strange. Hmm. So that's the, you know, brief and probably wrong in some ways overview of uh, the history of controller design. But so there's been a lot of variations on it over time. And I started getting interested in how we might pick up muscle memory from those things and how hard are controllers to learn in motor memory. So in the past, we've talked about instructional design a lot before with things like Papers, Please and a lot of other games and how a game can um, you know be designed to teach you something along the way. But I think there's a difference between learning skills in a graphical interface like that and physically doing something yourself. You know, in, in Papers, Please, I am not physically moving papers around unless there's a crazy controller I'm unaware of that was was released for it. It's called go to work. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's life. Life is the controller. <laughs> I'm sad now. <laughs> and uh, I found a article about the consolidation of motor memory by John Krakauer and Reza Shadmehr from Trends in Neurosciences in January 2006, where they looked at what it takes to form muscle memory in the first place. And they, one test they used, which seemed kind of cruel to me, but maybe that's just the world of research, is they would play, play a sound and then immediately shoot a puff of air at your eye and uh, measure the reaction time of how long it took to shut your eye in response to the, I don't know if pain is the right word, but irritation of it, at least. And over time, people got conditioned to, when they heard the tone, they would start to close their eye faster, knowing that the puff of air was coming. So the kind of standard Pavlovian research of you know ring a bell and the dog salivates
1: i prefer uh, getting food to going to the eye doctor personal right
0: yeah <laughs> seems like a possibly better outcome but then you'd also have to be a dog so trade-offs <clears throat> but along the way as another part of their study they also looked at what it takes to undo those conditioned responses and they discovered it could be undone by relatively few conditioned stimuli without the unconditioned stimulus which it's a phrase it differently means if they would play the tone and then not shoot the air at you, they didn't have to do that very much for your muscle memory to disappear entirely. So the next time they played the tone and did shoot the air, it was as if you had never learned any reflex in the first place. Mm -hmm. But relearning the reaction a second time after they taught it to you, took it away, then teaching it back took less time than it did the first time. So maybe there's still some... you know residual memory in there that can, can be brought back up to the surface. And related to that, uh, it can take time, which the term seems to be stabilization, for muscle memory to set in. So in another task that was measured, uh, it was a finger-pinching task, but I was a little unclear on exactly what that involved, but <laughs> the article just said it measured the speed of pinches along with a metronome pace, which was not a helpful description for me. But then they also invented some great terms. So they said the subject showed an increase in, quote, peak pinch acceleration.
1: Yeah, Well, PPA. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, right. It's
0: a standard (laughs) measurement in uh, metronome (laughs) pinching tasks, which have great relevance in many areas. Uh, But I I think that means essentially people got better at pinching, maybe. Uh, But so put that aside, actually, what they learned. Let's assume they learned something. And... That that learning then persisted to another session 15 minutes later, just by practicing something over and over again, stopping it for a while, pick it up again 15 minutes later, and you were still better at it. Not revolutionary in and of itself. You practice something, you get better at it. Mm -hmm. But the interesting kind of twist on that was they decided... What happens if we give them repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation while they learn? (laughs) Uh, Which, (laughs) as often, I wonder about things. Um, But it's basically you you shoot magnetic waves through someone's head, which I guess is proven to be harmless. We'll just go with that assumption. Um, So what what
1: was was their hypothesis?
0: (laughs) That you could disrupt the the learning process, the, the muscle memory setting in.
1: It, uh, that, you okay. know, that
0: they could disrupt that stabilization time period for learning the physical task. And they did discover that, in fact, the increase in peak pinch acceleration disappeared if the subject received that transcranial magnetic stimulation um, immediately afterward. So they would have them practice and, and get better at the skill. Then while they sat for 15 minutes, they would give them this magnetic stimulation. And then when they tested them again 15 minutes later, they showed like they'd forgotten they ever practiced.
1: So what does that mean for us in the real world?
0: (laughs) Great question. (laughs) That it takes time for memories to form, at least at the muscle memory kind of stuff. And then as a corollary to that, they instead tried giving someone the the magnetic stimulation six hours after the practice session. It had no impact at that point. So Mm. presumably that that earlier time was more important in um, kind of establishing the muscle memory and physical skills learned from practicing that exercise.
1: Oh, okay. So they were... Trying to determine the, the exact period at which that practice was crystallizing into a learned behavior. Okay.
0: Exactly. Just kind of by process of elimination.
1: That's kind of fascinating, actually.
0: Yeah. That you need that kind of rest time to, um, to, to let it crystallize in, in your memory. And they also determined that if you tried to teach them two finger-tapping patterns too close to each other, then you got worse results than if you just taught either one and then waited a while and then taught the other one.
1: Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's similar to some stuff that, you know, I would learn in my education classes about, you know, after you teach someone something, it takes a while for that to sink in for them to be able to do anything with that knowledge sometimes. Mm -hmm. Like, especially when I would go to Aikido class, you know, our instructor would often say that we're going to practice this a lot and you won't get any better at it tonight. But when you come back in a couple days, your body will have, you know, kind of learned everything that you put it through and, uh, you'll start to see results then. Mm -hmm. And yeah, another thing that you learn is that you don't teach somebody things that are too similar right next to each other, or you have to do it very, very deliberately so that, uh, they're clearly contrasting or else they get confused so
0: these are known uh, ideas in, in that field
1: yeah but it's still fascinating to see physical evidence of it mm-hmm. <laughs> through transcranial magnetic stimulation
0: <laughs> i'm gonna see what what kind of device you need to do that so we can incorporate it into my own experiments <laughs> perfectly legal i'm sure
1: I'm learning more and more about your workplace, Chad. You have uh, <laughs> minority report set up. You have precog students. You I are got some
0: vandegraff generators over in the corner, and a theremin playing soundtrack.
1: You are apparently That's neo. Are.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, and ultimately, they concluded that it probably takes um, hours at most uh, to for these um, like physical muscle memory or motor memory kind of stuff to set in. Whereas um, I need to read up more on this, but they said it might take weeks or months with declarative memory, such as fact recall, to fully crystallize. And weeks or months seems like a really long time to me. So maybe that's worth some future investigation.
1: Really, weeks or months for declarative memory? I need
0: to go back and look at exactly what the quote was.
1: Huh. Yeah, because I've that's something that that I read a lot about at one point when I was trying to learn Japanese was what are what are the optimal times to review. A word or some piece of declarative fact uh, to remember it best, and uh, one guy actually had a very precise chart where you review something after one day, then after a few more days, and then after a week or so, then a month, and that kind of algorithm forms the basis for a lot of flashcard systems now. Hmm. Um, yeah, so I'd be, I'd be interested to see what this yeah study says about that in detail.
0: Yeah, I'll have to dig that back up. But so at this point, you know, we've we've seen some research that basically supports perhaps the unsurprising conclusion that you can learn muscle memory, and it might take a, a little bit of time to set in by by practicing a task over and over again. And so the second piece of what I want to look at is from an article called A Matter of Time, Rapid Motor Memory Stabilization in Childhood, in particular by Esther Adijapa Rudd Rodaya Badir, Shashi, Doffberger, Karni, in the Journal of Developmental Science in May 2014. And they wanted to see if there's any difference in the stabilization time or the time it takes for physical skill to set in in children versus adults. And they admitted that their data was perhaps slightly inconclusive, um, but did show some difference uh, in the amount of time that it took. And basically that the stabilization in children was less sleep dependent and took um, less time to set in than it did in adults. And they quote, they said, the stabilization of memory was already on the way within 15 minutes after training in nine year olds, while in young adults, which they defined as 17, even an interval of two hours was insufficient for the stabilization of their task to set in. And, you know, 17 is not old. That's generally an age where people are still in school being taught but they found you know admittedly slightly inconclusive they said but did find a difference between um nine years old and 17 years old in the stabilization times required
1: yeah people's brains are still developing at that age Mm -hmm. Um, yeah
0: much more plastic
1: well at 17 i mean even oh yeah so did they zap these kids with Magnetic rays as well? <laughs> no, I think they did not go that far. Okay.
0: <laughs> I can't remember exactly what the methodology was. Uh, but to sum up, you know, between these two articles, we've, you can see that stabilization is required for retaining a physical skill after practice, and also it's easier to stabilize at a young age, which, to put my own theorization on it, you know, a young age is when many now-adult gamers, such as ourselves, were introduced to the hobby and started using controllers for the first time. Which then makes me think of my parents attempting to play the original Mario Brothers on the NES. And it just didn't work. They, they couldn't. (laughs) It just didn't work. It just didn't work. (laughs) The first Goomba proved to be a little bit too much. Uh, and they, they, I remember quite clearly my dad telling me that the controller was too complicated. Which was, you know, what do we say? Was an A button, a B button, and the directional pad. Right. Essentially, which is, you know, uh, way less than uh, what we've got today, even. So you and I learned this stuff as a child. Control design has been pretty much standardized, at least since that PlayStation 1 um, added dual sticks on there. But even going back, there's clear design um, influences back to NES and Atari and beyond. So if you need to train adults on a physical process or a set of inputs, um, I'm going to theorize why not use something they're already familiar with or not me theorizing, but other people are also. You can't go back and retrain someone as a child. You know, once you're not a child anymore, you've kind of missed that window of opportunity to take advantage of that decreased stabilization time. But you can take advantage of what they did manage to learn when they had that decreased stabilization time for physical tasks. So what is out there outside of games that could be controlled via gaming-style input or a controller? What comes to mind first?
1: I was going to say drones, but we already... (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> talked about your experiences with with drones.
0: <laughs> but yeah, I mean it, the natural connection is the things that you control in video games could also be controlled in the real world with the same buttons in in theory. Mm-hmm. And so there's been a lot of attempts in the military, in particular, since a lot of video games revolve around shooting things or flying things that also shoot things uh, with with um, with the controllers we've been talking about. And the oldest article I could find on this was from 1992, called The Transfer of Skill from a Computer Game Trainer to Actual Flight. I was from a conference on human factors and ergonomics society. Um, It involved training in the Israeli Air Force using a game called Space Fortress, which I have not heard of and not have been able to find a lot of information on. But they said the graduation rate of their group of pilot trainees who had gaming experience, which was 10 hours during their training, was double that of the control group that had no gaming experience. And the controller they used was a two-axis joystick and a custom three-button controller, which I believe was uh, designed to at least partially resemble the actual controls in the jets that they flew. And of note, this was not a flight simulator game in the way we think of it today, where you're in a cockpit flying a plane. The view looked much more like asteroids that you mentioned earlier, you know, this top-down... Flying a triangle around, shooting at things. But Still somehow, so. Came in, away in what with way was this air force skills. training? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, it, it was very uh, like kind of a "let's see what happens" kind of study. I okay. think. Okay. Well, they... But apparently, you know, there's multiple variables that I'm sure they weren't able to control for. But they did show, you know, a, a double graduation rate of those who had this. Uh, I don't even want to call it pilot training, but experience with a gaming controller of some sort. <laughs> But you you could see, you know, even way back in the early 90s, the military was interested in this kind of thing. Sure. So by 2006, jumping forward, um, Raytheon, defense contractor, introduced what they call the UCS or the Universal Control System. And there's this stupid quote with (laughs) words that mean nothing. But we, we took the best of breed technologies from the gaming industry and coupled them with 35 years of Raytheon UAS command and control expertise and developed a state of the art universal cockpit built around the operator. I don't know what any of that means.
1: Well, best of breed, so
0: that means good. Yeah, <laughs> we we took good stuff and we used it. So Raytheon said they took those best of breed technologies and what I did, what I'm assuming was create a cockpit kind of that dis, was more designed around systems they knew that their pilots, who at that point were people roughly our age, who grew up with games, would be more familiar with being gaming stuff. They pulled from that industry. And the press release I pulled that quote from mentioned a 2004 study that the FAA did. Uh, they said in the systems analyzed, human factors issues were present in 21% to 67% of accidents in, that drone pilots had. And they said that numbers suggest there's room for improvement if specific human factors issues can be identified and addressed. So whatever controls they were using in 2004 for this kind of stuff uh, seemed to have significant issues associated with it. And then in 06 you've got Raytheon coming in and redesigning their control systems for drones, etc. to use uh, more gaming-like interfaces. And similarly, there's another article I found from Business Week in 2008. they talking about how gaming companies, um, this was another quote from a Raytheon uh, person, Said gaming companies have spent millions to develop user-friendly graphic interfaces, so why not put them to work on UAVs? The video game industry always will outspend the military on improving human-computer interaction. (laughs) It's almost like that's not an area of priority for them. (laughs) And this article theorized that this could save the Air Force $500 million over 10 years by causing fewer crashes and uh, requiring less training time and needing fewer operators to control the the drones that they do have. Of course, Mm -hmm. that's a wildly speculative number. Who knows if it really means anything. But it also noted there was interest in this kind of interface from mining and oil drilling companies. And so beyond the military, I haven't found a lot of evidence of this kind of thing kicking in. This was kind of the, the one mention I found that there were perhaps other industries interested also in adapting those control types. Also in 2008, Wired Magazine was, or someone who wrote there, was watching a video of, I think it was a recruitment video for the British Army, that showed one of their soldiers piloting a drone, and noticed that they were using what looked an awful lot like an Xbox 360 controller (laughs) to fly the thing in the video. And they requested comment from the British military about it, and their quote was that it is not an Xbox 360 controller because, quote, you will see that there is no Microsoft wording on the controller, nor is there a wired headset port.
1: Well, Case closed.
0: Case closed, yes. (laughs) So I don't know whether they got Microsoft to make them A custom thing or what. But they had clearly just taken a straight-up controller by that point and were using it. Not even a system based on um, controller layouts. Then in the more ridiculous end of things, by 2012, you've got an article headlined, Syrian Rebels Now Have a Tank Powered by a PlayStation Controller. Hmm. And there's a video of it. This thing is a tank in name only. It's like sheet metal welded onto a car chassis. And I feel really bad i mean for many reasons about what's going on in syria but i feel particularly bad that someone may have ended up taking this thing into battle Um, but it was indeed driven by a playstation controller and that may have been more about what they had on hand rather than uh, any particular interface design but it was very strange to watch
1: well you use the tools you have available to you
0: yeah i suppose And then more recently, by 2014, the Army's high-energy laser mobile demonstrator is admittedly, they admit up front, is controlled by an off-the-shelf Xbox controller. And they've said that, um, quote, it is something that he, meaning the operator, doesn't have to go to school to learn that he knows how to use instinctively. And it may, may have been an Xbox 360 or Xbox One, that was a little bit unclear, but either way, they're pretty much the same layouts as far as buttons go. So takeaways uh you're well equipped for the military i guess (laughs) or modern drone pilots (laughs) with your built-up muscle memory of buttons and and interfaces
1: well at least i know i have a backup career
0: yeah exactly just show up at the recruiting office with your xbox controller
1: oh yeah i'll bring a screenshot of my achievements in xbox
0: (laughs) live (laughs) oh man (laughs) (laughs) you can put that on your Vita Uh, so other really more practical takeaways from this like put aside the military issue entirely I think there's potential for this in other areas of design also that as you're building interfaces build them around input types your users already know you won't have to train them as much on that stuff and you might not be able to train them as well anyway now that they're not children with their nice squishy brains anymore to absorb this kind of stuff and this might be particularly true for tasks that involve complex interfaces or require a Twitch reflex to be successful. So let's leverage how someone already has a Twitch reflex built up rather than try to teach it to them again. And if there's a parallel to this in web development or really anything, I mean, it's pretty accepted that it's bad to violate design conventions and even less so in the physical world. But you know, if you're building a website, people generally expect the home button will be in the upper left. It'll probably be a logo and take you back to the homepage of the site. There's no reason to... to to break that expectation so if you're building a system that's going to require a lot of buttons and you know maybe quick reflexes why not lay it out like a controller
1: so what's the application of this to every once in a while I feel like someone comes out with a a mech game where you're controlling a huge robot and the big selling point of the game is there's a huge controller with a gazillion buttons and a joystick and uh, it would take forever to learn how to play
0: yeah, Steel Battalion or, was the Xbox was that game it? that did that. Yeah. I'd never or, played it, but it's one of those games that I always wish I had.
1: <laughs> or you go to Dave and Buster's and there was, there was always like the corner where there was like 15 little booths where you could go in and do a game. Oh, that. I'd forgotten you all about that?
0: that. Yes.
1: I don't know if they still have it, but I, I was
0: terrible at, at that.
1: I, I was I was nothing at it because it was what fifteen dollars to play or something.
0: Yeah. I think I played it once and it was promptly annihilated, and then I think they gave you like a printout of your stats afterwards showing how badly you'd been annihilated. It's
1: just a sad face.
0: Yeah, basically. <laughs> but yeah, so in that case I would have done much better with a standard controller layout, rather. But admittedly part of the experience was that you had to reach overhead to flip a million switches and feel like you're piloting the space shuttle or something. Right. So, you know, that's Designing an experience rather than a productive interface. In that case, I would say, true. Um, you know, I would have done better at it with the standard controller, but I also would not have foolishly paid fifteen dollars to play it. <laughs> I wonder what ever happened in that game.
1: I don't know. I haven't been to a Dave and Buster's for a long time. I don't even know if they are still there.
0: Yeah, I mean, I wonder if there's like a warehouse full of those things somewhere now.
1: <laughs> some some desert in Arizona.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so this makes me wonder. You know, should we encourage building muscle memory around game controller concepts as a marketable job skill? I say with my tongue in cheek.
1: So, so I, right, so is this asking if you really should put your Xbox accomplishments on certain resumes? <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Or are there at least fields where it would be somewhat applicable? Do that kind of thing. So it's, you know, you can look at it from both angles. What fields am I better suited for? because I've presumably built up some level of Twitch reflexes and knowledge of these complex button layouts, or if I'm the person designing interfaces for my field, is it worth my time to design them around using standard um, you know, Xbox or PlayStation-style inputs?
1: Yeah, I mean, based on what you've said, it makes sense to me to start from the Xbox controller as kind of the the default, right? And then if you need to, change it, but if not, why not use something that a lot of your users might already know.
0: Yeah, assuming there's enough buttons and has the right kind of control elements for the kind of thing you're, you're building. Sure. I think I think it might make a lot of sense to go that way. So you could boil this whole episode down to probably something stupidly obvious. <laughs> but along <laughs> the lines of, if people know how to do one thing, don't make them learn something else, and they'll crash your plane less.
1: <laughs> it's about the journey. <laughs> we, we
0: yes <laughs> we had a great journey from
1: space war and, and the <laughs> wood paneled rooms of creative computing magazine
0: <laughs> i did uncover my memory of that old mech warrior game or whatever it was
1: yes so i think so, it was worthwhile
0: i'll chalk this one up as a win thank you <laughs> well you've been listening to gamification unlocked i'm chad hafley and i'm brandon carper If you're interested in reading any of the large number of articles I referred to in this episode, I'll put them all in the show notes at unlockinggames.com. You'll also find us in the usual places, iTunes, Twitter, and Facebook, but not SAP Snapchat because that one confuses me. I can't even say the name right. If you have a minute, we would really appreciate a quick review on iTunes. Uh, It would help our show get discovered by new listeners and fly up the charts on our way to world domination. Until next time, it's your move.